0: Hello, and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 298, just too short of 300 coming in fast, recorded August 23rd, 2022. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian
1: Akin. Wow, close to 300. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty that's, cool. uh, that's what is that, coming up on six years
0: here pretty soon?
1: That's really? insane. That's amazing. Well,
0: 52 yeah. times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So pretty awesome. And uh, got some fun folks we see in the audience who are out here uh, frequently. Will McGugan is here. Will is going to be a guest on the next episode, so if you want to hear from Will, be sure to um, uh, at least listen to the next episode. If you don't come to the live one,
1: yeah. Also, be before
0: good. we yeah, it'll be fantastic. I'll, also, before we get going on the topics, I just want to say thank you to Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub for sponsoring this and so many of the episodes this year. Super great to have their support. Um, Very cool. It's uncommon, Brian, to have such great uh, supporters,
1: wouldn't you say? It is uncommon. Um, (laughs) nice, Nice segue. I like it. So I'd like to talk about uncommon uses of Python in commonly used libraries. Actually, this is just a pretty cool article. It's by Eugene Yan and it's um it's, he goes through a handful of things i'm just going to pull out one but it goes through using super classes and a whole bunch of things the idea was um to learn how to build more maintainable and usable python libraries he's been reading some of the most widely used python packages and learning some things ab- along the way which is uh, this is an awesome way to learn is to read other code so, i agree i think it's fantastic yeah so he's go he goes through super and a handful of other things when to use a mix in uh, I don't know if I'd use that anyway uh, the thing I want to pull out is um, using relative imports all the time and this is something I picked up uh, uh, not too long ago but it it really isn't talked about much so the idea is that um, if you do an import like a, a import something or from some library import if you don't if you put a dot in front of at the beginning is like the first dot, then it looks in your in your path, your current search, uh, the directory of the, the the file that it's in. So, in the example, he has a base pi a base pi from scikit learn, and it it uses it says from dot utils dot validation import something, and and these are uh, because it says dot utils, it'll look for utils in the current directory and not somewhere else because there's probably a utils like. Somewhere else also, uh looking for the search path. Um so this is neat. You can do multiple you can move do multiple dots also. I don't ever I don't think I ever do that. I do the current directory and down or the current project and down. So um
0: this is but uh, dot dot will get you up up one and then down a different path or something like that, right?
1: It will. So if you do dot dot something and you don't do slashes, you don't it's not a direct a path. It's kind of like a path, but it's not. Uh like dot is the current directory, dot dot is like one up and you can do three, but wow, um, I think there's something wrong with your project if you're doing that. Um, but uh, maybe not. Maybe not. There's um, a couple of links in there for further reading. There's a Guido's decision on relative imports, which is part of the um, part of the, the Pep 328 write up. And actually, the this Pep 328 write up is this little bit about Guido's decision where he's talked about the leading dot or leading two dots. There's a really good easy way to get a handle on how to use this. And um, I I use this a lot now and try to put it in uh, projects, uh, you know, projects at work and project personal projects as well. So um, the dot thing is cool and yeah, it isn't talked about much. So I like it. Yeah. It's fantastic. It only works in packages and not just a pile of module files, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So you have to have Dunder init files within the directory. And that's, I guess one of the things that I wish we had another name for because In Python, we talk about a package or a sub package. These are, um, this could be just a directory with Python files in it that has dunder init and the dun and that that makes it a package in Python. But we also definition, yeah. Yeah. We also talk about the package repository In, in PyPI. It's the Python package index. Those are not just directories with dunder and nits they're packaged up with a whole bunch of other metadata and stuff like that. So there's two things that we call packages but yeah, they they have to have dunder and nits in them for this to work. So anyway, yeah,
0: uh, brand Brandon on the audience asked, "So are we arguing for relative imports?"
1: <laughs> I for I, the I current know. for the current directory I am. I think that um, within a project if you're uh like internal stuff, you're not I mean, if it's a if it's part of the external API of the project, I I will always go through the external API to get at something, but there's a whole, there's a lot of times where you're just developing a bunch of Python modules together, um, and they're internally they're going to talk to other subcomponents, and that isn't necessarily part of the external API. And this is the best way to get at it. So
0: yeah, yeah. All right, sounds good. Next up, let's go to the sky plane. So this one comes to us uh, from. Let me make sure I give the proper credit. This one comes to us from RMRF, the Sudur. Thank you for sending this in. Really appreciate it. The project is called Skyplane, 114 times faster cloud transfers. At first I was like, uh, what does that mean exactly? Like what's the baseline for this? I'll I'll say so uh, probably what they're basing that on in a minute. This is interesting for two reasons. It's interesting because it's a tool that I think many Python developers would find useful, especially those folks doing a lot of work in the cloud. It is also useful or interesting because it is itself a Python project. Okay, So if you want to contribute to it or understand it or extend it or work it and do other things, that's totally possible. It's worked on by a pretty big group of folks. The idea is it gives you blazing fast bulk transfers, file transfers between any cloud, any, it needs a little like star or an asterisk by it that says any means any of the big three cloud providers, okay? Whereas, um, you know, this is like AWS, it's Azure, and it's Google uh, GCP. Okay. So those three. However, what I'm not clear on is whether you can point it at the S3 compatible places like Linode and DigitalOcean also have cloud storage that are S3 like, but I'm pretty sure it it won't work based on the way I'm about to tell you what's going to happen next. Okay. Okay. So if you go over, there's an architecture section, and if you look in there, they've got this Sky Retreat 2022 where Paris Jane introduces Skyplane to the the folks there. It's about a 15 minute video, but you really got to watch just two minutes of it to get the the Zen. So they lay down a, a scenario. This is. I believe in their world, they're doing data science. And so what they need is they need the data very near to them. And there's a woman in the Middle East uh, using some AWS um, S3 endpoint there. And she has 30, uh, 80 gigs of data. And Paras is on the East Coast of the US and wants closer access to that data for their other work that they're doing. So there's a way with the AWS CLI to just copy from Bahrain or wherever it is over to Virginia. And they run that and it says the after running for a while, it says estimated time to completion, one hour, right? <laughs> I don't know, okay. is that good or bad? Like it's it's a lot of data, right? Eighty uh, gigs. Yeah. Halfway around the world. It's miraculous that this is possible. But is that good or not? So then they say, well, let's try it with Skyplane. They were getting like twenty megabit, I think. They run it with Skyplane, they're getting thirty gigabit transfers from wow. the Middle East, and it took thirty seconds instead of an hour.
1: That's quite a bit faster. <laughs> <laughs> that no is arguing awesome.
0: That? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so instead of going across the open internet, it's, it was transferring basically over like dedicated fiber for just AWS data center connects or something like that, right? But what it does is it will spin up a virtual machine or many virtual machines in the different data centers. So I think what happens here, not 100% sure, but I think it fired up some VMs in Virginia copied it from S3 in Bahrain directly through the internal data system, data center transfer, and then pushed it into like nearly local S3 storage. And you can do the same thing from like AWS East Coast to Azure West Coast, right? You would fire up a, a VM, I think in that scenario, in both of the data centers, and those VMs would talk directly over the high speed data center network. Instead of like the S3 one, we'll copy it down to your machine and then you push it back out of your machine to the new destination. Yeah. So it basically manages data center to data center traffic.
1: That's pretty cool. Makes it's
0: sense. It's pretty cool. It has, yeah, yeah, yeah. And but it's like all the CLI. It's like one CLI command and that's creating the various virtual machines, provisioning them, setting up the encryption, doing all the stuff, and then it shuts hmm. back down. Um, so, and as far as security goes, what you do is you basically install the AWS CLI or the, the Azure CLI and you just Log into those local CLIs and it CLIs and it uses those behind the scenes to do the setup of like create the VM and then SSH over to it do the work or something like that. So it has uh, a lot of uh, integrity checking. So it does like checksums and verifies the files are there, the the file sizes are the same, and all that kind of stuff. It does end to end encryption, sort of. So the VM as it gets it out of cloud storage encrypts it and then sends it over to the network. And then when it has to decrypt it to drop it back into the other place. But it also on top of that goes over TLS. However, some people might be storing encrypted data in the cloud because they don't trust that it couldn't, you know, it's not gonna get looked at. So yeah. even the stuff in S3 or wherever Azure Blob Storage could be encrypted, in which case you can turn all this off and it'll go a lot faster because it's already encrypted end to end. It'll set up like virtual private networks. Uh, with if it's within a data center and there's a bunch of cool things that are kind of nice that you don't have to worry about. Anyway, this is the the sky plane. So if you're transferring data between different clouds or even different um, data centers within a single cloud, it looks like it'll do a lot of nice work for you.
1: Now it's it's believable that it it's faster. I'm curious if it's cheaper also. Any any comment? Oh, that's a that?
0: really good point. Actually, uh, if you go and say AWS to Azure or vice versa, I think it's the same price. But if you're going Azure to Azure, it probably is cheaper because I don't know if they really charge you for the S3 CLI. If you say do a transfer, Yeah, you're still like flowing through, but you know, the within data center transfer is cheaper than outside, yeah, out, of, out. out of the, yeah, exactly. Huh, cool. So maybe, I don't know. They didn't talk about it, but possibly. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's anyway, awesome. That's what I got for you. Yeah. Skyplane. Nice. You know what else is awesome? Speaking of Azure. Uh, Microsoft for Startups. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They are, like I said, big supporters of the show, big fans of the show. And this episode, like many of them, is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. If you have a startup and you intend to have some kind of cloud computing resources or you've dreamed of going to something like a a Y Combinator type of accelerator, this is a really w- great way to get some of the benefits of that. So... With Microsoft for Startup Founders Hub, they give you a bunch of resources for running your startup in the cloud in Azure, but also uh, many other uh, cloud resources like a bunch of GitHub credits for uh, automation and actions, as well as access to places like OpenAI. But another thing I think is really important is having access to mentors and people who have been there and have the right connections. Right, like I think honestly, that might be the hardest thing about doing a startup. Because as developers, we can build it. Often we can build it, but then it's well, how do you build the right thing? How do you, you know, in terms of customer fit? How do you get access to the right networks so yeah. that you can find people for investing or get better um, maybe coaching for like sales and marketing? All those things are incredibly hard, especially if your your expertise is in software. So through Microsoft for Startup Founders Hub you get access to their entire mentorship network, uh, access a pool of hundreds of mentors across a bunch of disciplines like idea validation, fundraising, management, coaching, sales and marketing, and a bunch of uh, technical areas as well. So you'll be able to book a one-on-one meetings with these mentors, many of whom are founders themselves. You'll make your idea a reality today with the critical support you'll get from Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. To join the program, there are very few restrictions. You don't have to be third-party validated. Uh, you don't have to necessarily have funding. You just visit pythonbytes.fm slash foundershub2022. Link in your show notes. You apply for free. You get accepted. You get all these benefits. And oh. it seems like a great program.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to see what comes out of this. Yeah,
0: absolutely. All right. what's What do you got for us here, Brian?
1: Well, uh, s- s- um, it wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about uh, um, Will McGugan a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> absolutely, Hey, will. So, so uh, there's an article that is is from the Textualize.io uh, blog, um, and it's seven things I learned about building a modern TUI framework. And this is pretty interesting because I think that I mean, uh, Will more than anybody else has has went has really thought about like, okay, I want to I want to have something be really responsive and really good to work with on the command line, which is it's been there for a long time. We just haven't developed it much. So there's a whole bunch of cool learnings that he talks about, like terminals are fast and and they're faster than we realize. But um, there's a whole bunch of like things that you can that are different about terminals in other places like Flickr and tearing and stuff and how to deal with that. So there's a whole bunch of learnings in here. The thing that like popped out is something that everybody can use um, that I wanted to talk about was a little blip that he talked about that is dict views are amazing. So, um, the, the, the thing he talks about here is that, um, so maybe, I don't know if everybody knows the term dict views or, or views into a dictionary, but things like if you ask for, if you have a dictionary and you ask for the keys or you ask for items, that is a view. It's called a view into, into a dictionary and, um, they are super fast. And one of the things he points out is that they act like, uh, they act like sets, uh, also and you can use the uh, you can use set operators like uh, here's the little carrot symbol and was uh, I can't remember I'll have to look it up the carrot symbol is a symmetric difference basically what's what's just give me a set of the stuff that's different about the two different sets or two dictionaries and um, the you can do this in code but he's doing it using um, using views because those those operators are happening with with C code. Uh, it's, uh, Python has optimized those, so they they work super fast, they're, and they're way faster than anything you could write uh, in Python. So um, this just taking the items of two dictionaries and using uh, set operations on them, uh, and then you can go back to dictionaries if you want. You don't have to use that, but super cool. Um, I I hadn't had I didn't know that about dictionaries and views. So yeah, super nice. I obviously use. Dot items and dot keys all the time.
0: Didn't know they had this name, <laughs> and I didn't know you could do set operations on them. Quite cool,
1: right? Yeah, super neat. Um, then he 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 goes covers a whole bunch of other stuff like uh, LRU caching and the, how fast that is. One of the things that I thought was great, um, uh, where he talks about uh, Unicode in art, um, Unicode art in doc strings of just uh like a picture says says you know a picture gives you a thousand words or whatever, but um. It, he, he gives an example here for talking about splitting uh, the screen into sub And yeah, there's no way to, I mean, describing it in text is good, but this little picture goes, you can just mentally go, oh yeah, I get it. If you give it a cut X and a cut Y, you end up with four regions, obviously, but it isn't obvious just looking at the API. Um, but with, with a little picture, you're like, oh yeah, that's cool. So he's got a little uh, for people listening, he's got a picture showing uh, just a spatially what what it would look like using ASCII characters. So
0: neat, yeah, I love it. I love when people put art like that in there. Uh, I'm looking for where it is. I have to. I guess I'm gonna have to look this up. But in C Python, there's actually this huge diagram in the malloc in the the mani- oh, the memory management oh, really? section that shows you. It's like this. It shows you all the different uh, uh, data structures and concepts that are used to manage memory, like the the pools, the blocks, and the arenas, and all that stuff, in like a huge diagram in code comments. It's perfect. Nice.
1: And he gives a um, shout out to just one uh, tool that's around. He must use it called MonoDraw. It's a Mac tool, but so there are drawing tools that you can use to generate uh, ASCII art, so or, or Unicode art, okay, as it were. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Nice. Oh, maybe maybe I'll, I'll be able to find it here. Let's see. Uh, I'd love to share it with everyone if I can find it. Oh, yes. Here we go. Oh, I'll, just... I'll put the link in here. You ready for this, Brian? Yeah. You can show it. Yeah. Yeah. I just got to. I had to find it. Hold on. There we go. Look at this.
1: Oh yeah. So here's
0: the here's the object allocator. In Python, and it shows here's the object specific ones, the an int dick, and then there's like object specific, and then you can see these tiers. Then there's the object, the Python object allocator, the raw memory, and it even goes down to like here's the OS in the physical memory. And then uh, I think maybe further down, we might be able to find like some of the stuff about arenas or whatever. But isn't that nuts?
1: Yeah, but also it's awesome because you, I mean, it, you can visually now you can read the text and it makes more sense instead of yeah, just. Yeah, it has having... a
0: short description and then a proper picture yeah. uh, of here's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Very good. Cool. So yeah, yeah, that's a great, great example. And great recommendation. Sometimes a little bit of ASCII art like this, it <laughs> feels, really does help. It
1: goes a long ways. Yeah. yeah but there's a it whole, sure whole, does. whole bunch of other great tips in uh, Will's article. So I uh, encourage people to check it out.
0: Right on. Another thing that goes a long way is Python. There's an InfoWorld article called, that refers to Python as unstoppable. The title is Python Popularity is Still Soaring, but the subtitle is Unstoppable Python once again ranked number one in the August updates for both the TOB and PYPL indexes. I don't know if that's PyPL or I, I don't know how to say this, but uh, hmm. another secondary programming language index. And uh, yeah, how cool is that? Very cool. Also, a really nice rocket image. I was going to say, this is uh, <laughs> it, it, ca- it characterizes the other pl- programming languages, hot air balloons, in Python as a rocket. Taking <laughs> yeah. Out. So, uh, yeah. Uh, some interesting things to take away from here, let's see, that um, Python first took the top spot just um, last October. So that was actually big news, right? Yeah. Now, it, that makes it the only language besides C and Java to ever hold the number one position from the TOB index. Mm. And not only is it still number one, but it's actually gained a couple of percentage points on the current rankings uh, year over year. So, um, for example... Come down here, you can see it's actually up, you know, 3.56 percent. I think that's year over yeah, that's year over year, nice, uh, which, which is pretty awesome. Um, also, but C even and Java C, have gained also,
1: so other, I guess, we're whittling down, taking away from. I think language. it's taking
0: from the lower languages down here, right? Like Objective C, or oh, here we go. Would it surprise you that Pearl and uh, Fortran have lost? Um, yeah. by the way, also, the, it has the. Ratings. I don't know if that's quite what you would consider market share, but Python is at fifteen percent. You know, C is at fourteen um, percent. Things that uh, sometimes get compared, like R, is less than one percent. Ruby is less than one percent. Those are uh, pretty interesting uh, comparisons. Yeah, so they're not. Ter- the,
1: they're also not really general purpose languages. I mean, R yeah. isn't at least. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. Let's see. Yeah, the the TOB commentary accompanying the index was Python seems to be unstoppable. It's hard to find a field of programming in which Python is not used extensively nowadays except for safety-critical embedded systems. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, let's see. Rust is now number 22, closing in on the top 20. And Carbon. Have you been tracking Carbon? No. This is, I believe it's Google who's behind Carbon. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a language that's intended to be, to supplant C++, but be very C++-like. An experimental successor to C++ strives for the C++ performance and compatibility while avoiding its technical debt and extreme difficulty to improve. (laughs) Ouch. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Not saying extreme difficulty to use, but like, it's just, it's where it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's like. A language on top of a language on top of fifty years. Anyway, um, but so Carbon has entered the index at number at position one hundred ninety-two. They've got some work to do. Yeah, but it's still interesting. Something to watch. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And you look at the other programming index again. No idea how to say it. PyPL. The popularity of programming language is what the acronym stands for. It's an index creating. uh, um, It's created by analyzing how often tutorials our language tutorials are searched on Google. So that's one metric. Um, Python is like massively ahead of second place Java, third place JavaScript, and then it drops quick, quick, quick down from there. Like for example, Ruby, 1% people are interested in tutorials how to do it versus almost 30% for Python. Hmm. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, that's just another another uh, factor that was part of this InfoWorld article. So, you know, I... On one of the live streams not too long ago, somebody said, "Oh, I heard that there's not a whole lot of jobs or interest in Python. Maybe what else should I learn?" But you know what? I, I'm not so sure you're getting great advice if, if that's uh, where where you're thinking. Okay. I mean, popular is popular is not everything, but it's an important part of like, can I have a job? Can I find developers doing this? Will there be a library for my thing X I want to talk to with it, and so on.
1: I um I love Python obviously, um but I. It's hard to answer those, like for a job, which languages should I, whether languages should I learn? Um, yeah. I, I don't want to answer that. Uh it depends on what you're trying to get into. Um, but um, just as a roundabout developer, I think it is important to learn more than one language. I, I don't think that it would, I wouldn't want somebody to just stop with Python no. and say, oh, I'm good. No, no, no. So, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, and you also, if you want to build mobile apps, you might want to look elsewhere. Uh, well, except I, I, might have a, I might have something in an extra section for you on that okay, cool, yeah. but did i did I switch the order? Did I jump in front of you? I think I may have. I don't think so. you got one more thing to go no right. tell tell us about some magic. oh no, this is part one of my extras, so oh this is one of your extras okay, well, yeah. let's that's it then just yeah, okay. jump in the then extras. let's jump into your extras. all right on
1: I didn't want to cover oh, wait, this really quick really quick
0: comment just from I think this is kind of amusing from s e. Steve in the audience. extreme <laughs> difficulty to use is just a side benefit of c plus plus, yeah, I mean, yeah yeah. <laughs> Yeah, think about all the jobs people get to keep without much effort over time. Like
1: exactly. I mean, if, yep. the, if there was a lot of competition for C developers, um, uh, I don't know what I would I would do. I'm I'm enjoying I mean, the not, lack things. of competition. Yeah. <laughs> um, so exactly. um, I just ran across this "The Magic of Map lib Style Sheets" uh, article, and I just wanted to bring it up for people that might might want to to try it out. So I've um I've used matplotlib matplotlib style sheets before and they're just great. So you could just say like um so let's say you've got a a current plot and by default it's just um it's not bad it just it it is what it is. Um and then if you just drop in one line of code use styles plot style use and then you drop a style sheet name. There's a whole bunch of built-in ones you can use. It just looks nicer. It's got like oh I love it's so subtle, but it looks so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Um but I didn't know that it's pretty easy to write your own. I didn't I mean I figured maybe style sheets were complicated. So the rest of this article just talks about um uh really how to how to write your own style sheet. So uh if anybody's interested in in customizing the style sheet for their for their group or something. Um, might be a good thing to just have, you know, be able to roll your own style sheet. So yeah, fantastic. Uh, One of the things um, that the the 10 year old in me enjoyed that uh, the if you want the lines to end in a square instead of a rounded line, you give it a solid cap style of butt. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) It makes it chop off the end. So that's funny. (laughs) That is funny.
0: (laughs) Uh, All right. Yeah, this is not this is not one of my uh, extras, but I might as well add it as a follow on here is um, XKCD plots have landed. Yeah, and Matplotlib, right? Like this, I'm sure this is probably accomplished the same way. But <laughs> look at that! Isn't this? Aren't these
1: fantastic? I use these at work because they're just it. Especially, I I especially like it if if I've just made up like made up the data or my sample size is small. I don't want anybody to take it as like a research project it's a it's just i'm i'm right. showing something in informally so
0: right right um sometimes there's a whole ton of value to present it not quite polished yeah there's an app i use called um let's see what is it i want to make a new bolt comic oh, it doesn't let me type anymore well um it's called balsamic and it it'll generate oh, yeah. wireframes of like web browsers and buttons or to do mobile apps or whatever and it intentionally has this shape like it looks very xkcd like like okay don't this is not the answer this is not the final thing it's just to give you an idea of like here's the layout and so on
1: yeah and cool. it's i think it's balsamic oh. with a q uh, if people are looking yes for it. it's, it's
0: funky small it's spelled funky yeah i think what happened is the key, the my keyboard's battery died so anyway that's why i can't type anymore I'm not on a laptop, so when the battery dies, that's it. But that's fine because I already got all the stuff I want to talk about anyway. Um, We talked about I wouldn't try to learn Python to write mobile apps, and I still stand by that. But we discussed way back on episode, which one was it? On 295 a couple weeks ago, we talked about Flet, And Flit lets you write Flutter apps in Python. It is super neat. Yeah. where um, Just look at an example or whatever. I'll uh, pull up the, the tutorial, but like the code that you write. I mean, if you ever done Flutter, it feels very much like that. But what you write is Python and it's glorious. Anyway, the the extra that I want to talk about is I had uh, Theodore Fitzner, who is the creator of Flet on Talk Python last week. And if people wanna hear what he had to say about it in our conversation, they should check that out. Nice. Yeah. All right. That's it for my extras, I believe. It's you uh you ready for a
1: joke? I am, but I good just, time. I want to like pause and just say, well, I think that's one of the cool things about how we've done uh, uh, Python bytes and talk Python and test and code of, uh, if we do these small segments within Python bytes, but if we can, if we want to just uh, also do like a deep dive, we've got the other podcast to do a deep dive into something It's, it's good. So Absolutely. It's super nice and
0: kind of on purpose, right? We kind of designed this one so we could just quick talk a bunch of fun stuff. And then the yeah. other one, if you really want to spend an hour on something, like that's what it's for. Yeah. So hopefully people listen to both or all three, I rather. All three. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All um, right. Now something funny. Now, no? you know, I talked about the cloud stuff and you, you specifically ask about price. So here's the joke. This one has... Two pictures: one, somebody who is new to AWS, and somebody who is experienced at AWS. <laughs> the new person, it shows this like cartoon character walking one step, steps on a rake. The rake whacks up and smashes him in the face. It's new to AWS, accidental fifty thousand two hundred fifty-two dollar monthly bill. <laughs> the experienced one with the rake is like, you know, how sometimes skateboarders will jump up and they'll like grind down like a stair railing It'll do something amazing. Well, maybe it's a kickflip the they showing, yeah. Yeah, off, yeah, sorry. Off the stairs, the kickflip off the stairs, and yeah. like that often goes good, but not always. So here they're doing like an amazing kickflip with the rake. Off a at the rake. end, they, <laughs> they they land at the bottom, smacks him in the face. is accidental. Fifty thousand two hundred fifty-two dollars. <laughs> <bill>.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then down here, uh, there's a funny comment from somebody who, how they forgot to uh, turn off something. So they just, but luckily their card expired. So they just let their EC2 account um, expire. And, you know, um, Amazon was talking about doing like healthcare stuff and whatnot. So this, this person here, Jess, Jess the Unstill she says, uh, just wait, soon enough, if you don't pay your EC2 AWS bill, they won't even let you visit your doctor. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Sometimes interesting. things are funny. Yeah, interesting
1: idea though, to, to attach your, uh, aws account to a, a credit card with a low balance so that's that's one way to- uh,
0: interesting yes exactly it might be a benefit <laughs> yeah so it just cool. might be a benefit actually yeah quite cool anyway i i thought this was kind of funny um, yeah. but you also have heard of real stories of startups shutting down because they accidentally did get like a sixty thousand dollar bill and they're like we can't pay this
1: well also baseball. just yeah, or or somebody just it misconfigured it, and suddenly yeah. they're they're making like uh, the transfers are like you know three times larger than they're supposed to be, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: so I'm, every time I run this command, it spins up a cool uh, VM to do the test in the cloud. I forgot to shut it down. Oops!
1: <laughs> now I have a
0: hundred <laughs> VMs running. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So concrete advice: you can set up billing alerts at different. Tiers, like once it crosses $100, send me a, a message. Once it crosses $200, send me a message. Those numbers will differ for people, but I would strongly recommend that you set that up at your cloud provider. Like if it goes beyond a reasonable amount of what I normally would like to pay or expect to pay, yeah. let me know
1: soon yeah not like tomorrow let me know right away (laughs) exactly
0: in fact can you make my smoke alarm go off because i really need to get up and get going (laughs) yeah Yeah. Uh, so yeah anyway all right well fantastic to be here with you brian good to be with you too talk to you next week yep yep see you later thanks everyone for listening oh really quick uh one piece of follow-up out here from uh, kim in the audience if a huge aws bill accidentally happens i'd rather um I can speak to the AWS directly before giving in in despair. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I've heard yeah, of. They I, might. I've
1: yeah. heard of success stories where people just talk and and they 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 work with them. Um, on the other, yeah, to- it's worth a try. On the drawing topic, Will um, recommends that uh, where to go. Excel uh, Draw has a similar look, so I'll have to check that out too. So yeah, I haven't heard it. of that one. That's cool. All
0: right, all right. Talk to you later. See you all later.
1: Bye. Bye.